One of the uh, one of the mistaken assumptions that I've made it many times in my life. Maybe you've made the same, have the same thought. One of those mistaken assumptions is that faith would come easier for me if I could have just seen Jesus do something awesome. If I could have, if I could have been there when Jesus was casting out demons or healing someone with a touch or you know, speaking a word and this guy gets, gets transformed. Like many other people, I've struggled with doubt at various times in my life. And in those times, I've thought to myself, if I could have just been there, if I could have just seen it, then I could be sure, then I could be sure about who Jesus is. I could be sure that he's worth staking my life on. Have you ever thought that way? Am I the only one? I bet not. It's, it's natural enough. It's a natural enough thought. But Mark's stories, both the ones we've already seen and the ones we're going to see today, suggest that it's not nearly that simple. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, story by story, watching how Mark builds a case for who Jesus is, for why Jesus came to earth, what he came to do, and then what, what kind of response Jesus demands from us. And one of the ways that he's making his points is showing us different examples of how people have responded to, the, to Jesus, to the things he's done and the things that he's, that he's said. On this last point what our response should be. He's given us positive examples, some who respond in faith, like his first disciples, who he speaks to, and they leave everything. They just leave their net and their nets. They leave their fathers and mothers, and they go with Jesus. And he's given us negative examples, people like the religious authorities that we considered last week, who see in Jesus, rightly, a challenge to their own authority and to, and to the regulations and principles that they used to structure their lives and that, that gave them a sense of value and meaning in the world. The stories we come to today are all about responding to Jesus. They open with a sweeping summary of Jesus' ministry as it begins to expand. We're told of people coming from all over, not just in Galilee, not even just in Jerusalem, but from places like Tyre and Sidon, from, from miles and miles away, in a, in, a, in a time and place where travel was very restricted. It was difficult. You took your life into your hands when you traveled. People were flocking to him from all over. They're coming to him just trying to get at him, just to touch him, because they know if they can just touch him, his power will heal them. Before we saw him confront demons with a word and they, they fall out. They, just, they, 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 they come out of the person screaming and crying. Here, they see Jesus coming, we're told, and, he, and they, they fall down and confess that he is the Son of God. His ministry has expanded so much in these early stories that we see Jesus calling 12 of his followers and appointing them with a special authority to help extend his work. They're going to be his delegates, his apostles. He's going to send them out to do the things that he was doing, to preach the kingdom, to, to heal those who were sick, to cast out demons. And as we read those opening stories, when we see this dramatic response to Jesus... We can be tempted to think that, of course, people flock to him when he's casting out demons without speaking a word. I mean, when they just see him and they, they fall down. Who wouldn't flock to him in that case? We would have, too, if we'd just seen what they had seen. But the crux of this text we're going to look at today, where we're really going to focus in our attention, shows that actually there was more than one way to respond to Jesus. Evidence doesn't interpret itself. People then 
were confronted with certain information about Jesus, experiences that they had, things they were told, things they heard him say. They were confronted with information about Jesus. We, too, today, are confronted with information about Jesus. It's not the same. We don't see him. But just like those people who did, we've got credible testimony handed down, preserved dramatically through thousands of years that tell us things that, uh, that, that happened, things about this person, every bit as credibly as any of the old Greek histories you got subjected to in high school or college and, and that you just take for granted as true. These ancient historical documents come to us and they, they paint a picture of Jesus. And just like those who actually saw him face to face, we've got options on how we're going to respond to what we hear. It wasn't a given how they would respond any more than it's a given how we will respond. Mark gives us a range of options. Primarily, in the stories we'll see today, we could respond to Jesus by calling him crazy. We could respond to Jesus by calling him evil. Or we could respond to Jesus by calling him Lord. Before we get into it, let's read the text together. If you would turn with me to Mark chapter 3. If you didn't, uh, by the way, I meant to mention earlier, if you didn't have uh, a Bible, don't have a Bible with you, we've got some extras at, uh, on every row. There, uh, if you want to flag somebody down, uh, we have them here on the inside of each row that, uh, that you can use to follow along this morning. We're going to read from Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse number 7. And if you would mind, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word? Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Cananean and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. 
Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. You may be seated. So, we could respond to Jesus by calling him crazy. We pick up the action where right after Jesus is called his 12 disciples, we get our first look at this storytelling technique that Mark loves to use. It's one that most folks call the Markin sandwich. Maybe you picked up on this uh, as we were reading, especially in verse, uh, beginning with verse 20 and carrying on through verse 35. What he would do is, and I guess as a way to build dramatic tension, to try to to try to, to emphasize the connection between two stories and to get you ready to hear what was coming, he would begin a story, and then just as he gets to about the middle of that story, he would insert another story fully and completely, and then he would come back and finish up on the original story that he started out with. He does it several different times throughout the book. We're going to come across this again. The main point is that he wants us to see the connection between the two stories. They're making the same basic point. And in this case, the point that they're making is that there were many bad responses to Jesus, even from those who saw firsthand what he had been able to do. I guess the first story, what we might call the bread of the Markin sandwich, relates to his family. Jesus' family think that he's gone crazy. And it's not hard to sympathize them with them here. Remember, Jesus came down to Capernaum, which has been his home base through everything that we've read so far. He came there from Nazareth. That's where he was from. It was a ways away. It was in the same general area, but it, it was a ways away and travel was hard. Chances are his family had never seen his ministry firsthand, but news traveled fast. I mean, if people are coming from all over to see Jesus, they certainly had been hearing the kinds of things that, that he was doing. And you can almost imagine what it was like for them, for these, this family who had grown up with him uh, just as any other child, we don't we aren't told about any kind of special powers that he used as a kid you know, to 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 zap other kids who aren't playing nice. There are stories that are floating around from this time out there like that, but none that we that we recognize as credible. For all we know, he was just a normal kid, and so here his family's hearing some crazy story about a baptism where the heavens look like they're opening up, and this voice speaks down to him and addresses him as a son as a son in whom the voice is well pleased. Then they hear he's been talking to demons somehow, that he's claimed the right to forgive sins, a right that only God has. They hear maybe that not only that, and maybe even worse than that, he's been associating with people who are known to be sinners, with those people that you know not to hang out with. He's, that's who he's built his ministry on. That's where he's spending his time. Then they hear he's picked a fight over the Sabbath with the most respected leaders in that part of the world. And you can imagine them responding to these stories one after the other. What? He said, what? 
He said what to whom? He did what? And then they hear this story. They hear, they get a report that the crowds are so uh, are pressed so close to him that he can't even eat. Verse 20 says they were so close to him that he and his disciples weren't even able to eat. And they hear, they hear that and that's it. That's the last straw. We're going to get him. He's out of his mind. That's the conclusion that they draw. And in one sense, their response is pretty close. He's claiming that he's brought in the kingdom of God, that it is here and it's now and it's because he is here and he is now. He's claiming that he has the right to forgive sins that are committed against God alone. He's calling himself Lord over the Sabbath, one of the most sacrosanct institutions in Judaism. He's claiming to interact with evil spiritual forces. He's claiming to defeat them with a word. These are claims that if you heard some guy on TBN making them and you didn't already think he was crazy, you would think he was crazy once you heard these words, right? And you'd be right. He had lost his marbles. That would be the logical conclusion to draw. And ultimately, there isn't a good, plausible way to explain Jesus as just another strong moral leader, as just another nice guy, a good teacher who was, who was for the good of society because of the things that he taught and the things that he did. He, he can't be just that. He can't just be another Gandhi. It makes more sense to call him crazy than to explain him away as just another holy man. Anyone who made claims like his would be crazy unless, of course, he is who he claims to be. In Jesus' case, that's exactly what we have. Consider the other things that we know about him. Consider the other facts Mark is, is communicating to us around these claims that would be crazy if he weren't who he says he is. Consider the precision of his arguments with the religious authorities. Consider the persuasive power of his words that, that, that he's able to speak and get the response that he's looking for immediately. Consider the beauty in his teaching, the vividness of his images, the clarity with which he brings familiar examples in to explain his points. Consider the compassion of his touch of the outcast leper that heals him and brings him back into society. Do, do these things strike you as the behavior or the speech of someone who'd gone crazy? You got to decide what you're going to do with this data. You have claims that are verifiably crazy unless they're true. And you know other things about this man that don't seem crazy at all. They actually seem impossible if such a person was insane. And so what you're left with is a choice. You can call him crazy. You can call him Lord. Next story. You could end up calling him evil. And that's exactly what the religious leaders of this time chose to do. The meat of Mark's sandwich comes in this middle story, verses 22 through 30. Yet another confrontation between Jesus and the religious authorities. Though this time, they send down the big guns from Jerusalem. In the past, he's been doing battle. He's been doing this intellectual war, if you will, with the religious leaders who were in the provinces, right? Galilee was not the center of intellectual activity in ancient Palestine. It was the fringes, right? I'm not going to make a comparison to somewhere today that it would be like because I don't want to offend anybody who might be from there. But we all are thinking right now of, 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 of different provincial areas in this country and, and elsewhere. That's who, that's who we've done battle with so far. 
people on the fringes of Holy Land geography. They were like the branch managers. And now the folks from corporate have come down to set things straight, right? The scribes come down from Jerusalem. Their assessment is that he's possessed by Satan. That somehow, and for some reason, he's casting out demons by the prince of demons. They're not disputing his ability. They've seen enough, right? They've seen that he can do the things they had heard he was doing. He's undeniably powerful. But in their worldview, in their way of looking at things, he couldn't be legitimate. He was saying things like he has the power to forgive. He was saying things like he's Lord over the Sabbath and the regulations that these scribes and Pharisees held so close to their hearts on the Sabbath, he is saying don't apply to him. So from their worldview, the very fact that he is disputing them on these issues shows he's not holy. He can't be holy. He is failing the standards of holiness. So if he has power and it isn't holy power, it must be evil power. He must be casting out demons by the prince of demons. They say he's possessed by Beelzebul, the old Canaanite deity, the ruler, the lord of the temples, what it means. And Jesus defends himself. He defends himself with some pretty simple logic played out in a few parables. Really, it's pretty simple, beginning with with verse 23. If he's casting out demons, if he's casting out the powers within Satan's realm by the power of Satan, then Satan is divided and turned on himself. Jesus says if Satan is casting out Satan, then it's like a house, a, like the house of David, like a kingdom, a royal family split wide open and competing with itself. History's given us many examples of what this looks like. He's talking about a nation that's divided on itself in civil war. How rarely does that ever end Well, that's what's happening. If they're right, Satan is at an end. But you look around, and he's plenty powerful. There's still many people who are possessed. Jesus is casting out demons left and right, but there's still lots of evil power in the world, according to Jesus. So clearly, he's not at an end, and therefore, he's not casting himself out. He wouldn't be able to to survive in as much power as he has survived in, if, if that's what he was doing. That's Jesus' That's Jesus' argument. So, so how does Jesus define his power then? A third parable does that. If, if it's clear enough that Satan is not divided against himself, then why and how is Jesus here doing the things that he's doing? Far from cooperating with Satan, Jesus has come to plunder Satan's goods. I love the way that he phrases that in, in his parable. If you want to take away somebody's possessions, what you've got to do is tie up the guy who's strong, right? You come into his house, you tie him up, and then you take whatever you want. The way that Jesus, or rather the way that Mark has been describing people who are, who are inhabited by these demons is as possessed, right? They are the possessions of the demons. They are Satan's possessions. And now Jesus is here to bind the strong man and to take back his possessions. This is an image with a whole weight of prophetic history behind it. Jesus is declaring himself to be the one spoken of in Isaiah chapter 49. In Isaiah 49, 25 and 26, we hear this. Thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. 
Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Jesus is the strong man come to plunder the goods of his enemy. That's how you explain his power. That's how, that's how he explains his power. That much is clear. The real mysterious part of all this comes in the next section of Jesus' response. He's not content just to defend what he's doing. He's responding to their thought that he's evil, that he's not who he says he is. He is a charlatan. He is a wolf in sheep's clothing. He's doing things on behalf of Satan. That's their claim. He's just responded to them, showing how foolish that is. And now, not content with that defense, he adds a warning. He adds a warning that makes it clear how high the stakes are when we're deciding what to do with Jesus. Those who claim that he's possessed are not just mistaken. They're dangerously close to what Jesus identifies here as an eternal sin. What is typically referred to as an unpardonable or an unforgivable sin. All sins, he claims, in verse 28, will be forgiven. And whatever blasphemies people utter, except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you right now, full disclosure, this is weird. And I'm not fully sure what this means. This is one of the byproducts of preaching verse by verse through a book of the Bible. You don't get to step over texts like this one, or believe me, I would have. And I can't promise you today that we will fully grasp what this is about, but I think we can make some headway, especially if we consider the specific place that these words come in the story, who it is that Jesus is responding to, what it is that they've said that he's now responding to. That, I think, gives us the key. This isn't an abstract statement. This is one that makes a very concrete point in a particular conversation. He's speaking directly to those who think that his power and with that, his whole mission is evil. It's from the devil, not from God. What they're doing then is denying that his power comes from the Holy Spirit, comes from somewhere else. And this is the key. Because in chapter 1, it's the Holy Spirit that Mark tells us is the key to Jesus being able to give forgiveness of sins. Remember, Mark sets up John the Baptist who's preaching in the wilderness, calling people to repentance and to be baptized as a symbol of their forgiveness of sins. But, he says, one who's coming, there is one coming who is mightier than I am. And the reason he's mightier than I am, presumably, the reason that he's able to forgive in a way that I cannot is that he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the key to the forgiveness Jesus brings that Mark couldn't bring. The Holy Spirit is the linchpin in the forgiveness of sins. We're going to understand later that Jesus' death gains the right to grant forgiveness. But the Holy Spirit is the mechanism. The Holy Spirit is what works in a person's heart to bring them to repentance and faith. There is no forgiveness, in other words, without the Holy Spirit. So the reason this sin, then, is unforgivable, the reason blasphemy against the Spirit, which in this case means, a, ref means a, a, a refusal to accept that he's acting. The reason it's so important is that it denies the power and work of the one through whom forgiveness comes. 
And so it's necessarily to deny the possibility of forgiveness itself. It leaves you, in other words, bearing the weight of your sin on your own. It's an unforgivable sin because it's a refusal to acknowledge the source of forgiveness. The way that it's phrased here, the kind of verb that gets used, and in the way forgiveness is seen later through Mark, I think shows conclusively that this is not some sin that you make in passing and then move on and it's too late, you know? You slipped up and said the wrong thing one day, and now, no matter what, from here on out, you're stuck in this sin. You've committed it, and all hope is lost for you. That, that's not the way that the sin is described here. This is an ongoing, habitual hardening of the heart against what the Spirit is doing in the world through Jesus and later through His church. It's the inability, fundamentally, it is the inability to tell light from darkness, to tell the difference between good and evil, between the power of Satan and the power of the Spirit. And if you can't tell that difference, repentance is impossible for you. You cannot repent and believe. Now, trying to figure out not just what this text means, but how it relates to us, that's been the real trick for me this week. And I've already admitted that there's an element of mystery here that I just can't cut through. But I think I can easily tell you what this text does not mean for you. If you're worried about whether or not you've committed this unforgivable sin, let me comfort you by saying that I can pretty much guarantee you, you haven't. The very fact that you're concerned about it shows that you want to avoid this sin. It shows that you're not the hardened sort of person who could be guilty of this sin. There's no example of anyone anywhere in the Bible coming to God for forgiveness and being denied. Nowhere is that reported. The one who came to seek what was lost to heal what was sick and restore what was broken, the one who came to set captives free, he's still the one who stands ready to receive you now and to wipe you clean of any sin that you have committed. If you would come to him today, I can promise you that you have not been guilty of this unforgivable sin. So that kind of fear is not what you should take from Jesus' warning. What you should take away from this warning is a deep sense of just how much is at stake as you decide what you're going to do with the Jesus Mark has presented you with. There is an eternal weight attached to your decision. In light of this warning, there isn't any room for apathy. So you've been presented by Mark with some stories about Jesus and his life. Don't explain them away. Do not explain them away particularly as evil. And we're not as likely today to say that he was possessed by a demon. You know, we, we live in a disenchanted world. Theirs was an enchanted world. We don't see, typically see demons under every rock in the way that they would have. But we have our own ways of denying not just Jesus' power, but attributing it to powers of evil. We're much more likely to see Jesus as just another power-hungry, charismatic figure who lied about his identity to gain a following and win fame and fortune. We're, we, are, we are more than likely to see him as that sort of populist religious figure who's looking to make it in a free market of religion and that is doing whatever it takes to make that happen. And we've got lots of history 
of people claiming the name of Jesus to do precisely that sort of thing. But we can't afford to get caught, so caught up in the evil that has been in the history of the church that we write off Jesus himself and what his spirit has done through his church ever since the days when Jesus was here. We can't write that off because we have seen dark spots in its history. To do that is to risk, I think, making the same error that the scribes have made and to say the only power of Christianity, the religion founded by Jesus, is a power of evil to oppress people, to hold them down, to keep them from realizing their potential. Jesus is not that kind of evil genius. He came with compassion to those who were shunned by the rest of society. When he received fame, he ran away from it. He sought to preach the kingdom and repentance and faith above all else. And he marched to Jerusalem not to claim some throne, but to give up his life willingly for others as a ransom. If you try to explain him and his church away as evil, you just aren't taking the full picture into account. And by denying the work of the Holy Spirit in his ministry, you risk falling into the same devastating consequences of the scribe's sin. You could call him crazy. You could explain him away as evil. Or you could believe that he's exactly who he claimed to be. You could recognize that the best explanation of Jesus' life is not that he was insane, not that he was an evil and manipulative force, but that he is, in fact, mysteriously, the Lord of all made flesh. What would it look like for you to acknowledge Jesus as Lord? Jesus gives us a picture of that. In the closing story, where Mark picks up on the story of his family that he was telling at the beginning, he, we're told Jesus is in some house. He's got his followers all around him. His family shows up. They're here to shut him down. And Jesus says, he's told that they're looking for him. And Jesus says, my family, here's my family. Those who do the will of God, they are my mother and sister and brothers. From the beginning, Mark has told us Jesus is here to establish a kingdom to set up a new people that exists in a healthy and peaceful and loving relationship with the God who created them, the God against whom they had sinned, but who had now, through his own initiative, made it possible for them to have peace. That new people, that kingdom, is the point. Here, we see that that kingdom looks less like the oppressive monarchies or the tyrannical regimes that we're familiar with than it does the warmth and love of a healthy family. Jesus' response is a radical reorientation of what it means, what it looks like to be part of a family. It's tempting to see him as harsh, as if he didn't care for his family, right? Who are my family, he says. These are my family. That, that, that is tempting to see him as harsh and uncaring. But really, I think what we're to see is that he cares so much for his followers. He was human. He had known the tender, loving bond between mother and son. He had known the camaraderie that's experienced between brothers. He loved his family. We're given no reason to think he didn't. It, 
in spite of that love for his family, transcending that love for his family, we're now told that he considers those who follow him to be his family in a way that makes that other loving and and presumably healthy family almost non-existent. That's how much his family relationship with his followers transcends all that we could know in our own human experience. Maybe you don't have images for what this could be because you come from a broken family or your family is dysfunctional. You've been disappointed with a father or mother or spouse. Maybe you're an only child and can't resonate with the love and the comradeship that brothers share. Jesus stands offering words that echo David's in Psalm 27. When my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. When father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. Those who follow Jesus, those who call him Lord, they exist in in him and with him in the bonds of what is described throughout the New Testament as a family. We can't push the analogy in this text too far. It's not meant to be. None of us are Jesus' mother, like Jesus says. But elsewhere, we get this same image of what it looks like to follow Jesus fleshed out. We're told that that we are to, to God as adopted children, that Christ is, in fact, our brother, and that that comes with the same unconditional love and acceptance that that, uh, that, is, that is offered in a healthy family. Not that we can't be challenged. It's not that he won't push us to grow. To, it's not that he won't seek our good through pushing us to, to combat our sin. But his love for us is unfailing. So who qualifies as his family? There's a warning here. There's a warning here to those whose background implies that they're with Jesus. When in fact they, they may not be. If his words suggest anything, if the way that he talks about his, his, his real biological family here mean anything, it's that his family, his true family, his kingdom, is not something you're born into. It's not something that can ever be automatic. So don't assume that your familiarity with Jesus, that your upbringing in the church... The fact that you, perhaps you're a second or third or fourth generation Christian means that you've fully grasped where you stand with Jesus. There isn't a substitute for all of life discipleship. Jesus is not and cannot be an accessory to your life. You can't just say, I'm a, I'm a Tennessean, I'm an American citizen, I'm a Vandy alum, I'm a Titans fan, and, and I'm a follower of Jesus, right? That kind of cultural Christianity is no Christianity. And Jesus' response to his family shows that clearly. You can't be born into it. It's all-encompassing, as when Simon and Andrew were called to Jesus and left everything to go and follow him. So how do you do it? How do you join? How can you make sure that you are calling him Lord, that your response to Jesus is one that includes you in the family that Jesus came to create? Jesus says it's those who do the will of God. And that can be an initial shock for us, right? Because it sounds like he's saying it's those who are perfect. And he is, sort of. Jesus' family is made up of those who are perfect. And we aren't perfect. But Jesus is perfect 
for us. Jesus, you remember from the beautiful passage in chapter 1, is the one in whom God is well pleased. And by identifying with him, we are counted as those who do the will of God. Now, on the backside of our identification with Jesus, what it looks like to walk as those who do the will of God, what that looks like is repentance and faith. The same things that Jesus said when he came preaching the kingdom in chapter 1. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the gospel. That's Jesus' message. That's what it looks like to do the will of God. It's to turn away from yourself and all other sources and to turn to, in faith, to the one who alone has the ability to make you right with God and give you peace. The one who does the will of God is the one who follows Jesus, much like those who were called, much like his apostles that we saw earlier in our reading. Those who were called to do what? To be with him. That's what it looks like to do the will of God, to be with Jesus. Being with Jesus means learning about him. It means reading what has been told to us about him in the scriptures. It means being part of what is left of him on earth, his body, the church, who is put here to make a representation of what that family Jesus came to create actually looks like. The church is here to show you what the family of God looks like. Following him means being with him, which means being with his church. It means preaching the kingdom. It means healing, restoring. We aren't told we have the ability, the apostles were given to cast out demons, but we have the ability and are given instruction to be a part of good in this world and to combat evil wherever it exists in whatever form. That's what it looks like to do the will of God, and that's what it's going to look like for us to call Jesus Lord. So, We've all got to decide, what are we going to do with Jesus? One of my favorite framings of this question is C.S. Lewis' famous framing of the choice. In his book, uh, Mere Christianity, which many of you guys have, have, have read, he echoes Mark's account so closely in this passage. You've probably heard it before. This is what Lewis says. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Mark is giving us a Jesus. Week after week, we've seen him. How are we going to respond to him? You can call him crazy. You could call him evil. Or you could call him Lord. Let's pray together. We thank you, O oh God, that though we live 2,000 years later, you have not left us absent a witness to yourself and the things that you said and came to do, we know that that's a gift from you. Help us to appreciate the weight of that gift on us this morning. Help us to see and to decide 
with a wisdom that comes from the activity of your spirit in our hearts and minds. Convince us of the reality of your spirit and his work by transforming us, we pray. We have seen, even in these stories, that you have done that before. And yet we see ourselves in Jesus' family and in the scribes and those who doubt. Would you lift us out of that? Would you give us the strength, the courage, the insight, the wisdom, the ability through your grace to decide to worship you as Lord? We pray this with hope and confidence in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.